Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Book Club. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, Dylan. Dylan, how are you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good, man. I just left Los Angeles and I left you there. And currently, <laughs> currently in New York, missing LA already. But how's everything in SoCal? Yeah, everything's great. Definitely missing you here. Weather's great. Definitely think I would like to spend some, a lot more time here uh, as my kind of first few weeks here in LA, but uh, having a good time and uh, looking forward to digging into LA more. Amazing, man. So before we dive into the book, um, just some administrative stuff. You guys can reach me at vibov at thetechbookclub.com. That's spelled D-A-I-B-H-A-V. Instagram at techbookclubin. And today we're talking about American Kingpin by Nick Bilton. And it's the story about the Silk Road basically a billion dollar company created in 2011, basically buying and selling drugs. And Dylan, this is actually my favorite book for the podcast so far. Um, oh, wow. I can't think of another book that I like more than this one. Maybe Trick Mirror, which was episode one. But yeah. this was just such an amazing book. What did you think of it? Yeah, I loved it. Like as a tech entrepreneur, I thought this book was a super great case study into like marketplace businesses, uh, into like some of the technology that you know enabled this marketplace in the first place it, it read across like it was it was a super easy read like really episodic definitely non-fiction but it felt like you were just like watching a movie which was pretty cool digging into like some of the moral stuff with like you know being a drug marketplace like it wasn't ever like heavy-handed with like morals or ethics um it, it was heavy-handed with like in my opinion it was pretty heavy-handed with some of the imagery which i thought was like you know superfluous you know to be yeah. honest but the author didn't like shove any like ideals like down your throat. Um, instead, the author just like laid out the facts in a really entertaining narrative. And then it was up to you as the reader to decide how you felt about it. Right. It, it sort of reminded me of Breaking Bad, to be honest, but at a much larger scale and behind a computer screen because this was an online marketplace for drugs. Yeah, yeah. And the protagonist, uh, I guess the real character here. So the main character is Ross. Uh, Ross actually was in, apparently inspired by Breaking Bad. Yeah. And in total, this website trafficked $1.2 billion of drugs and other illegal goods as well, such as weapons and software. And it all started with this guy named Ross Ulbricht. Let's start with Ross and then talk a little bit about the website. So Ross was raised in Austin, Texas, and he graduated from Penn State with a master's degree in 2009. So he's in his mid-30s now. But back in 09, he felt like a failure and Many of his side projects had failed at the time and he didn't have a job. So he sort of wanted to do something that aligned with his libertarian ideals, something that would make him a lot of money and something that would make his parents proud because, you know, his parents also were libertarians in Texas as well. And he sort of had this belief that drugs should not be illegal and people should basically do whatever they wanted with their bodies. So with his libertarian stride, he sort of envisioned a website where people would buy and sell any drug whatsoever. And he was obviously very idealistic. He didn't really view himself as a criminal. He thought that he would show the world that the best way to deal with drugs was to legalize drugs and basically allow people to do whatever they wanted as long as they didn't hurt anyone. And he actually had this fantasy that one day he would free all these people who were imprisoned by drugs because he would show the world that legalizing drugs was the best way to do it. 
as a founder myself, like I thought this was a pretty strong um, example of what Paul Graham calls founder market fit. Ross was a huge libertarian and like apparently like really loved drugs. I, I don't I even think they, the book really dug into why he loved drugs so much in the first place, but like he was really passionate about drugs. I think he was like the right person to start Silk Road. And that's where the whole idea of founder market fit comes into. Like, I don't think there are many people in the world who are at this intersection, this like Venn diagram with like one circle would be like, you know, huge libertarian, the other circle being like loves drugs. And then like in the middle, there's only a few people there. And like Ross was one of them. And then even within that intersection, like you need to find someone who's going to be smart enough to like, you know, piece everything together and like uh, diligent enough to actually work on it. So there's, yeah, definitely. I mean, this clearly turned out to be a big market opportunity, even though it was an illegal market opportunity, but uh, there weren't many people who existed who could have pursued this opportunity. And Ross was, Ross was one of them. Yeah. Um, and to build the website, like Ross used two main technologies, Tor and Bitcoin, and obviously he was smart enough to take advantage of that. Do you want to talk a little bit about those technologies for a sec? Both of these technologies are, you know, great for privacy. So Bitcoin was like the missing link for like exchanging funds. Tor was the missing link for for the interface so that people could like browse um, the, the web assets, uh, anonymously. Um, so without these two assets, like Silk Road wouldn't have been possible. And timing in particular is interesting. Like when new companies emerge, like if there's like a big multi-billion dollar company emerging, that's almost never just like due to accident. There's almost always some kind of market trend. Cause like people are smart. They're always like trying to pursue like business opportunities and why this opportunity worked in 2011 in particular was because of Bitcoin. So Tor had been around for a while and Ross had had this idea for Silk Road for, I think the, the book said like over a year or something like that, but like he was always like figuring out exactly how to do payments until suddenly he stumbled across Bitcoin. And then, uh, you know, Bitcoin at the time in 2011 was still relatively unknown, I would say, but it was like coming up. And then when Bitcoin was emerging as a viable method for payment, that's when Silk Road suddenly became viable. And then that's when Ross started to actually code up the site. So uh, yeah, in terms of like timing, like I think the demand for drugs is, is a, you know, has probably been around for an extremely long period of time, but this company in particular could not have existed much, much earlier at all. Right. And diving into Bitcoin a little bit, it's basically just digital cash that was completely untraceable and anyone in the world could use it to buy or sell anything without leaving any digital fingerprints. And that's very important when trying to create like an illegal drug empire. There wasn't a way to pay illegal drugs anonymously before Bitcoin, Bitcoin because, you know, obviously cash was too risky and credit cards would leave a digital footprint for the buyers. And Tor, as you said, like allowed people to stay anonymous on their browser. Ross basically taught himself everything. He didn't come from a software engineering background, but he basically learned front end, back end, And whenever he came across a programming problem, he was smart enough to learn how to fix it. He was sort of forced to do this. Like he couldn't just hire someone to help him build a website that sold illegal drugs. So he sort of had to be crafty to figure out how to program himself. Yeah. So I also thought this part was really interesting, like learning like how he built this website. Like Ross used uh, really, really simple, like relatively primitive web technologies. He used PHP and MySQL to build this site. Really simple shit. Um, that's the same tools that Facebook used. And I think this is interesting for anyone who's involved with like product or software at all, because, um, that probably means you work with engineers. Engineers like love to like hate on PHP. Um, MySQL isn't the sexiest database either. And like, you know, a lot of engineers, I, 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 in my career has spent a lot of time, like 
I guess, arguing with engineers about like what technologies to use and things like that. And some engineers get really heated wanting to use like cool, sexy stuff. In the end, like your users don't really care as long as you're solving like a good problem. And as long as everything is good enough, like they don't really care how clean your code is or how sexy your like tools are. Like PHP and MySQL are like super battle tested software supported like applications, you know, supported Silk Road's growth have definitely supported applications that were much larger than Silk Road. Um, so in the end, like, you know, if you're a product manager or if you're a CEO trying to ship products, uh, the technology you use doesn't really matter that much as long as you pick something that's good enough. Yeah, no, this sort of reminds me of what Michael used to say about how don't worry about the tech. Don't worry. Michael Seibel. Yeah, Michael Seibel. Don't worry about all the technical debt that you're building up. Like once you have product market fit, you can hire hundreds of people who are smarter than you to fix all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. So at first, Ross made all the drugs himself. He put it in this warehouse, <laughs> basically a drug lab, and he did this all in Austin, Texas. And the first iteration of this was basically 100 pounds of hallucinogens, and he put it all together for $450 per month. And yeah, it was the- wild. <laughs> he actually said, uh, I, I think... Uh- um, the book touched upon very briefly later that his first actual iteration was inside of his girlfriend's underwear drawer. Like he grew like, like maybe like a, a small handful of like mushrooms, like in, in like an underwear drawer. And I guess that worked <laughs> out. And then he decided, okay, now I can just find investment for like this, like cot or whatever to like grow like production scale mushrooms. Right. And once he had all that basically set up and the website was ready and things like that, he basically posted anonymous comments on drug blogs and bitcoin blogs and the traffic started trickling in and eventually people started buying the drugs online this was really cool because it's showing like how ross like seeded his own marketplace like he had big visions for silk road becoming this like marketplace for anything but he started with drugs and particularly he started with mushrooms so he um you know he seeded this his own supply by growing like his own mushrooms and then he seeded the demand by going to like mushroom websites and uh, and then he would just like post links there um, and then that apparently was it. That's, that's apparently what was enough to get his first sales. What did you think of the virality of this website? Like, it seemed like after his initial posts and initial comments on these drug websites, the website just took off just like that. Yeah, yeah. So I think the narrative here definitely did not necessarily talk about that. I think at this point, the narrative was probably more talking about the social ramifications and then the, the governmental teams that were pursuing him. Um, and then the personal, the interpersonal issues that Ross was facing in terms of like actual business stuff. Like I would have loved to have seen how Ross handled, you know, distribution and marketing. I would have loved to have seen how he handled like managing his employees with like all the constraints that he had, like needing to run like an anonymous illegal website. There's a lot of stuff that like, I, I'm pretty sure is documented somewhere in the government, but like, you know, at least in the book, you know, we couldn't, you know, we didn't really get to see it. I'm, I'm of the opinion that uh, it must've been word of mouth. Um, because there's a lot of paid, paid advertising platforms and like social media stuff that would just have not permitted like any, any creatives for Silk Road and even like SEO stuff, like SEO stuff is generally like a really, even though it's organic, it's a more organic channel. Um, and it's generally a good channel for marketplaces. Um, even still, like I, my hunch is that he definitely must've been growing both supply and demand through word of mouth. Yeah, that makes sense. Eventually, press comes in too. So the Silk Road was picked up by Gawker Media, and very soon it was in the news everywhere. And even the U.S. senators started talking about it, and NPR, basically everyone. 
And it was basically both terrifying and amazing for Ross because that was a point, like he already had a significant amount of traffic up until this point, but like that basically just- It was like an inflection point. Exactly, it was like some sort of exponential curve after that. Right, right, yeah. So he might've been on one slope before and then that slope just suddenly increased dramatically after that. Um, I thought that was, uh, you know, you always hear people say all press is good press. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's true, but I think if you're small and if you have nothing to lose, then that's that's definitely true. Um, And uh, yeah, I think getting called out by Chuck Schumer, (laughs) by Senator Chuck Schumer on like, you know, being a target for, you know, the highest levels of government. Uh, I mean, that's, that's pretty cool press. If you, if you want to run like an illegal like website and you want to, you know, if the government puts a target on your back, that's, that's a pretty cool way to get some free marketing. Don't do that, of course, but (laughs) if you're going to do it, then yeah, Chuck Schumer definitely helped out. So Ross made a mistake early by telling Julia and his friend Richard Bates about the website. Julia was his girlfriend. Richard Bates basically helped him with the website early on. And he came to significantly regret that decision because Julia ends up telling her friend Erica. And when Ross finds out, he obviously flips and realizes that he needs to evade the country. So he just is constantly traveling. He first moves to Australia, travels the world for a bit, and eventually returns back to the U.S., basing himself out of San Francisco. And he basically started making more and more money. He quickly becomes a millionaire, and he becomes friends with certain users. All of them are anonymous, of course. And over time, he starts hiring them, and these people start helping him out with the code base. Yeah, this was a cool kind of instance where I got to see this heuristic in place, which I think some people on like Twitter call like missionaries versus mercenaries. Like there's like two opposite hiring models. Uh, One is uh, where you hire missionaries, where people are driven by the vision for your company and what your mission is to accomplish. Um, And the other is mercenaries, where people are mainly driven by money. And, you know, both of these hiring models work. Uh, Both of these hiring models have trade-offs. But in this case with Silk Road, I don't think Ross really had much of an option to just like hire anyone. Like he definitely had to hire people who were down for the cause. The best examples are like finance companies versus like tech companies. I feel like in finance companies, you can, almost everyone you're hiring are mercenaries. And like me spending one day in New York, just walking down Brookfield Mall, I just saw so many people in suits today. I was like, and now you're saying this, I'm like, these guys are all mercenaries. Whereas in San Francisco, San Francisco and LA, like I think there are many, many mercenaries and many tech companies that are filled with mercenaries, but like you do often find people who are missionaries and like are doing it because they, they believe in the product. And I think that when it came to the Silk Road, almost everyone who worked for the Silk Road were missionaries because they believed in the product. They believed that drugs should be legal and they also had libertarian values similar to Ross. I mean, even within tech, like, you know, there's, there, it's a noisy correlation, but you could suggest that like consumer companies are like probably more kind of missionary, like high, hiring models, whereas like B2B companies would probably be more mercenary hiring models. Like, there's definitely like less sex appeal, like less relatable sex appeal with most like B2B companies. Right. That makes sense. So there was a small mutiny after Ross made a change in the fees. So basically there was once a flat 6.25% fee on every transaction in the Silk Road. 
but he changed it to a variable structure. So there was a 10% fee for low value orders and there was a 1% fee for high value orders. And I think that you had an interesting point about how this indicated that the Silk Road had very significant defensibility when it came to its business. Yeah, so I think Mark Andreessen's uh, defines defensibility as the uh, capability to increase your prices without people without people leaving, without your customers turning. So they'll still like transact on your platform, even though your take rate is higher. So Ross increased his take rate for like a significant portion of like his transactions. I think, you know, the author used the word mutiny here. I think that was, that's like a strong word. I, I wouldn't call it a mutiny. He definitely pissed off a lot of like a lot of his like users, I guess, a lot of the suppliers that were on his platform. Um, but he was able to do it. Um, and because like he was, uh, he just had significantly more bargaining leverage than everybody else. Like, you know, if they were threatening, you know, if they were upset about it, then like, what were they going to do about it? They could like leave Silk Road and therefore they would leave behind all their customers as well. Uh, or they could just like deal with it or, you know, they could try to negotiate with Ross, but like Ross had all the leverage, like he had all the bargaining leverage and there was basically nothing they could do about it. So, you know, there's some businesses that you, that, you know, grow and then eventually they die out because they don't retain like long-term bargaining leverage over their customers and long-term bargaining leverage over their competitors. But this was not one of them. There was network effects at play with this two-sided marketplace. I mean, honestly, Ross could have probably changed his, his take rate multiple times and maybe the book only mentioned it one time, but like, you know, it was just a good, a good, you know, business model to enable uh, Ross to retain all of this leverage and, you know, remain defensible as he continued to grow. And as he continued to grow, he probably became increasingly defensible. Um, and then there was like a second point here too, which uh, I thought was interesting. Like, you know, the users were complaining about like how much money Ross was taking and then Ross just didn't listen. Ross just like kept going with it. And I think that's interesting because like there's a lot of people within like tech that say like, oh, you should listen to your users. Just like uh, listen to your users and then like everything will work itself out. And I think that's dumb personally. I think that's idiotic. And it's like, I think users, you should, I mean, obviously you should listen to your users most of the time, but I mean, you're, you're doing business. You're not like having fun together. So like there, <laughs> there's naturally going to be some zero sum conversations, especially when it comes around pricing. I admit I'm kind of personally rambling here too. Cause like I've worked with people like strategy wise, where I was trying to tell them like, Hey, our users want us to do this certain thing and we shouldn't do it. And then like people would push back on me and say like, no, we should. But like, you know, is it, in, it's clear in the user's best interest. That's why they're asking, but the user doesn't care about you as the business operator, as their vendor, they just want their problem solved. And that could be either through you or not. If you keep listening to your users, they'll eventually, you'll eventually basically get zero money from them because they'll want everything to be free. And then you're going to have to give them like tremendous value, you know, through your goods and services. It just doesn't really make sense. Like, you know, you listen to your users most of the time, but in the end, you're, you're a business. You're not just there to like make everyone happy at your expense. Right. Right. So at one point in this book, he renames himself on the Silk Road from admin to the Dread Pirate Roberts. And this was one of my favorite parts of the book because the Dread Pirate Roberts was a famous character from The Princess Bride. And the Dread Pirate Roberts, or DPR as they call him in the book, was basically just an awesome symbol for who Ross was, at least on the site. DPR is feared for his ruthlessness. He's well known for taking no prisoners. And Ross wanted to take on the symbol of the Dread Pirate Roberts because DPR is not one man, like in, in the books. Like he's, he's instead a series of individuals who passes the name and reputation of the Dread Pirate Roberts to a chosen successor once they're wealthy enough to retire. So there's no one Dread Pirate Robert. Like basically 
the name keeps getting passed on to one individual at a time. So Ross takes inspiration from that and basically uses this alibi. Yeah, his running mate tells him to, to do it, I think. Right. So he had found someone he really trusted named Variety Jones. And like they basically came up with this name together. And he basically thought of the idea that if he gets caught, he would simply say that he gave the side away to a new head who now goes by the name of the Dread Pirate Roberts. And this name really riled up the community on the Silk Road. Yeah, I thought that was like a cool like way to like rally the entire community. It became pretty, so the book also didn't explicitly say anything about the community's role for the business, but like the book mentioned that there was a forum and like apparently the forum became so active that uh, Ross had to hire full-time moderators. Um, So like, you know, there was a real community that was budding around uh, his platform and uh, he was the leader of it all. And everyone loved that there was this Dread Pirate Roberts here. So um, it was a, I think originally um, Variety Jones recommended uh, Ross, you know, name himself Dread Pirate Roberts so that he could pretend that the original creator of the site moved on. And then that and there's this Dread Pirates Robert Roberts figure, just like, you know, I guess taking over. So I think it was originally predicated on like security and everything, but then eventually it also became, it also had this extra benefit of being this cultural thing. I, mean, I imagine the cultural thing actually turned out to be just as significant as the security uh, motive. Um, and yeah, everyone loved to rally behind it. And the community apparently got to the point too, where um, uh, like they had movie nights together where they would like all agree to like watch the same movie and hit the play button on the movie at the exact same time. And then they would all like talk about the movie. So like they talked about watching V for Vendetta, kind of similar ideas, I guess that they're talking about. Yeah, people have been talking about how communities are also like an emerging playbook for building like a like a defensive company. And uh, I think, you know, Ross was able to organically do that with Silk Road. Right. So eventually the Silk Road expands into guns, counterfeit currency, digital software. It's very yeah, a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, a lot of stuff. Uh, big passports, up, poisons. Yeah. And like, what did you think about that? The community spiraling out of control a little bit. I think most founders are like a bit more controlling. Most successful founders, in my opinion, are a bit more controlling than like they like to admit. Um, and I think wanting to be in control is a big reason why people, a lot of these founders start companies in the first place. But when you have a community and it's just like a big group of people, it's hard to control everybody. That's It's a good problem to have when your community spirals out of control, but it's still like a big problem. It could definitely like be a turning point in your business's uh, lifetime. Um, second thing I think that I thought was really interesting about this is the idea of like marketplaces being specialized versus generalized. So like Silk Road started as a generalized marketplace where you could basically list anything you wanted, even though Ross started by seeding the market with drugs. And then eventually, uh, you know, guns started to become a thing. And then um, it, like when you have a community, it's hard to make everyone happy. So like there are some suppliers, some like, uh, I guess, like drug suppliers that were unhappy seeing their listings right next to some like gun listings, for instance. And then, um, so eventually Ross made the kind of the executive decision to try to split out all of his uh, gun listings into a specialized marketplace that he called Armory, I believe, or Silk Armory, something along those lines. And uh, I don't think it worked. So I think he eventually merged everything back into Silk Road. I am aware that like, you know, there are marketplaces in the past that have done similar things where they try to siphon off like a significant portion of like, their community into a separate application or a separate brand. So like Facebook, for instance, siphoned off all of its messages away from the, the core Facebook platform and into the, their uh, messenger app. But yeah, uh, so the, Silk Road apparently hit a point where Ross had to make some like tough calls on like whether to build special, you know, all these different specialized marketplaces or just maintain one generalized marketplace. In the end, he decided to stick with the generalized one. Right. 
I feel like Ross was a true founder with product market fit, like things blowing up everywhere. He had to obviously push his employees. He had to, he at one point had to order the murders of people who crossed him on the Silk Road. He had to keep moving from place to place. He had to work around the clock to keep putting out flat fires on the site. He had to deal with disgruntled customers. And he also had to deal with the fact that the Fed was starting to arrest the biggest dealers on the site. It was just this guy working 18 hours a week, true product market fit. I mean, I thought that was really cool to see. Like, I've been lucky to experience product market fit at least one time in my career um, where, I mean, it's not fun. Don't get me wrong because you're like, you're super busy and people are always yelling at you. Uh, but the people who are yelling at you are customers and they yell at you because they really want what you're giving. And because uh, like what's worse, what's also a problem, but a much worse problem is no one caring about you at all. Um, and that's, I think, what most startups deal with. Most startups just deal with apathy. And then with these guys, um, you know, people, they work so hard, not because Ross was pushing them, but because their users were pushing them. Like, their buyers were demanding more and more. Their suppliers were demanding more and more. And there was just like, uh, as far as, I mean, from the narrative, it just sounded like, you know, they were getting more and more done. They were hiring more and more people. But the amount of work that needed to get done was growing much faster. That work only grows so quickly because the users are demanding more and more. So yeah, good problem to have. Definitely still a problem. Kind of not super fun to like experience, but it's still like when you experience that, you know you're doing something right. So one part of the narrative is Ross ordering the murders of people who crossed him on the site. So the first person he orders the murder of is a former employee who Ross thinks stole Bitcoin from the website. And he had to make an example of this. So he orders for his murder in exchange for cash, essentially. And the person who gets this task from Ross doesn't actually kill the employee. I think his name was Curtis something. His name was Curtis Green. Yeah. yeah. The person just fakes the murder instead and takes a picture of Curtis after Curtis dunks his head into water, has tomato soup coming out of his mouth, and basically pretends like he's dead. And people keep threatening DPR, and DPR keeps ordering the deaths of these people. And the people who took care of the murders, some of the murders were called Hell's Angels, and they would basically confirm that they killed these people by sending him back images of the deceased, but... They were all fake. Yeah. I, I thought this was interesting. Like, one part of the narrative, which I thought was great, was how Ross had to decide what he was going to do. Like, he, had a, he knew he had to hand out some kind of punishment towards, uh, you know, this subordinate that he had that, you know, supposedly had stolen money. Um, and he knew that his reputation was kind of on the line here. And uh, so he decided he needed to do something that was like bad enough. Like he couldn't just ask like Curtis to like pay the money back. He, and Curtis, by the way, didn't actually steal the money. Curtis was actually framed by some corrupt government officials who were stealing the money uh, instead. So Curtis was really just caught on the wrong side of a lot of stuff here. And I, uh, <laughs> poor guy. Um, but anyway, so yeah, uh, Ross, you know, decided that he needed to like, he was, I think he was choosing between like a few examples of like a few options with increasing severity. And then the most severe option to handle this case was to like commission the murder of Curtis Green to, you know, discourage other people from like stealing his money. And uh, so that's what he ended up deciding to do uh, because he, I think Variety Jones, his uh, running mate kind of pushed him in that direction too. Um, he just wanted to like create a brand and let people know that like, it's not a good idea to like steal money from Silk Road. And I think one of the things that really stood out to me is that even though these murders ended up being fake, like he truly believed that he murdered those people. And he basically, he paid money. He paid, he paid like, money. like hundreds of thousands of dollars, I believe in Bitcoin. Um, yeah. I actually don't remember the exact price. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, th- I believe it was around 50K for the first murder and then 500K for the rest. And it basically was a slippery slope for him. Like he convinced, he was convinced that these people were actually getting murdered. And like, he basically just like com- continued to commission these deaths. And it just goes to so- show that like, this ends- this is a nice guy in his like 20s who's like really friendly to everyone and has loving parents and has like a bachelor degree and grad. And he would never like, doesn't carry any weapons. He wouldn't murder someone in real life. But like, as like the leader of the Silk Road, like, it truly was a slippery slope for him. Yeah, yeah. Everything became a lot easier when all he had to do was like type some words and hit the enter key. Right. So Ross eventually has the DEA, Homeland Security, the FBI, the IRS, the DOJ, basically the whole world after him because this is an international website after all. And after months and years of investigation, um, it eventually hits them that Ross is the guy who did it. And they do this by miraculously connecting a few dots. So I put together the five most important clues that led them to figure out that it was Ross Ulbricht, who was the founder of the Silk Road. And jump in whenever you feel like you want to um, talk about these points. But the first clue was the IRS. I think the guy was Gary Aldman or something like that. He went through old archives and saw a user named Altoid post the first comment about the Silk Road on a magic mushroom website. This is how he got all the word of mouth started in the first place. So this user had a fake email that had deleted an old email address, which belonged to Ross Ulbricht. That didn't yeah, really- the old, Well, he actually saw the old email. It was like rossulbricht at gmail.com. Yeah. It's like a super damning email address. Yeah, yeah. So, so this clue didn't confirm that it was Ross, because he could have easily just been the first person to discover the website and post a comment about it, but it did add Ross to Gary's list of suspects. The second clue was Homeland Security going through mail being sent to the U.S. And the Homeland Security agents found nine small envelopes, and they were all looked the same, and they discovered that all nine of these envelopes contained fake IDs with variations of the same face. So it was basically Ross Ulbricht with a beard in one of them, a mustache in another one, different hair, clean shaven, just like different facial features and different names. And usually Homeland Security would simply just throw out fake IDs and drugs, but this was particularly strange. So they investigated and went to Ross's apartment in San Francisco to ask a few questions. This didn't lead anywhere in particular, but they did get a few quotes by Ross about the Silk Road that were particularly intriguing. He knew way too much. Yeah. They basically said, how do you, how would you find these fake IDs? And then he basically said that all you have to do is like go to this website called the Silk Road and use an anonymous server or use an anonymous browser called Tor and use Bitcoin to like buy these fake IDs. And he was like, so particular. He was actually having fun with it. He was just like being like, they're not, there's no way they're going to catch me. Like, I'm just going to say, just talk about the Silk Road in this moment. There, this uh, incident did put him in the database, though. Exactly. That was yeah. Like, that the was part. yeah. That was the thing, and and that database entry itself didn't lead to anything. But later, someone would find this database entry to tie back together some dots. And yeah, but in that right after this moment, there was no consequence. Exactly. Exactly. They didn't care that he bought nine fake IDs. So yeah. <laughs> the third clue was the Silk Road's IP address becoming available for a brief moment of time the FBI was able to catch it. And it's so interesting. Like the first clue was from the IRS. The second one was from the Homeland Security. The third one's from FBI. It's all over the place. But the FBI mm-hmm. was able to catch it and get through the servers of the entire Silk Road. They weren't able to find 
I, correct me if I'm wrong, but they weren't able to find much of sus in the server, but they did find a name next to the server called Frosty. I think that was like the important part of like finding the server. I think what happened was that they used this vulnerability to like basically get the entire servers like onto their thumb drives and everything. But honestly, I, I just don't see how like most, there's like a lot of like damning information like on the servers, especially cause like, uh, you know, the narrative was pretty clear that Ross took security very seriously. I imagine they were probably going through all the code and realizing that it's mostly just like normal kind of web application stuff. Uh, the big thing that the narrative wanted the readers to walk away from was that the servers were named Frosty. Right, and this is gonna be important for clue number five. So the fourth clue is that one thing from the server, there was a security flaw in the server that pointed the FBI to a cafe in San Francisco. And that cafe they later found out was right next to Ross's home in San Francisco. That wasn't a very important clue because obviously there were a lot of suspects in San Francisco, a lot of hackers in San Francisco, but this basically helped confirm things later. And because, because the cafe was basically like right next to Ross's home, it was like 0.1 miles away. And then the fifth clue was that the IRS, it was Gary Aldman again, he basically finds out that Ross asked a question on Stack Overflow about how to develop his computer skills. So Ross initially posted the question using his own real name, but less than a minute later, he changed his username to Frosty. They, these, these clues are all like super sus, like they're so like superficial, they're so flimsy, but like when the IRS guy was talking to the FBA, FBI guy about this stock overflow question, and when he told the FBI guys that like, hey, Ross Ulbricht changed the name from his real name to Frosty, it sort of connected a lot of dots for the FBI guy because the FBI guy was like, wait a second, the server's called Frosty as well. It's just like super, super loose stuff that put everything together, essentially. That probably like was able to like uh, get them to like all focus their resources on Ross to like really confirm that it was him. And then, then they uh, eventually kind of backed down one of his like employees, like one of the moderators. And then the moderator became kind of the key, like, so the moderator, uh, when she was like cornered, she, uh, the, the, I guess like the government kind of persuaded her to train one of the, like this guy, Jared, who worked for the government, they, she trained Jared to basically talk exactly like her. And then, so then her username on the forums as a moderator, she became this double agent. And then uh, they used, I think they really put in, put the nail in the coffin with this guy pretending to be the moderator. Yeah. So they used him when they were trying to capture Ross. So they needed to make sure that Ross was on his computer and logged on into all his administrative accounts when they arrested him. If his laptop was closed or if he wasn't logged into his administrative accounts, they possibly wouldn't be able to compile enough evidence to charge him for being the founder of the Silk Road. So when the FBI surrounded Ross undercover at the library, they were like basically like less than 100 feet away, all undercover, <laughs> like all, all near him basically. Yeah. Jared, the guy you were talking about, who was basically a double agent, who was, who was basically helping manage the forum, he basically messaged Ross to ask him about a particular flag in the forum. So when he asked yeah. Ross that question, Ross opened the laptop, logged in while all the agents were around. His admin library. permissions and everything. Yeah. Exactly. And then like, I think they tried to, they created a scene to distract him. Or like yeah. Maybe, yeah. That was a little weird. So I actually did more research on this too to understand what was going on. So, uh, okay. So I'm, I'm an Asian guy and like the book literally <laughs> said they sat uh, like a little Asian woman across the table from him and 
just I don't know I guess like Asian people just seem harmless but she was actually an undercover like FBI agent um <laughs> I just yeah. I, I just didn't understand why the book had to like point out that she was Asian but you know they did <laughs> and then they had two other agents uh pretending to be like a couple and pretending that they were like arguing and then eventually um I guess the male like undercover agent like raised his fist and wound up to make it look like he was about to punch his like his like female counterpart in this like undercover kind of fake couple and then ross looks up to look to look at this like domestic fight that's about to happen and then the uh the girl sitting across the table the woman she just apparently just like slides the laptop she grabs the laptop and slides it over to herself and then right after that these like i don't know i guess some like real muscle come in and they like pin ross down and like put him in handcuffs right so ross is arrested and the government gave him a plea deal of 10 years to life but ross rejects the offer when they're compiling the evidence to incriminate him, the main takeaway is that his laptop was not as secure as he hoped. The booby traps failed and they found his password on the RAM and basically they found everything. They found diary entries, financial spreadsheets, millions and millions of messages on the Silk Road server, messages between him, Variety Jones, basically everyone involved. And Ross's defense lawyer or argued that Ross and DPR were two different people he admitted that Ross started the website, but that he sold it when it started becoming too big and that the real DPR could be anyone that Ross didn't know who he sold it to. And DPR was framing Ross because they knew the feds were putting him as a suspect as the real DPR. But that did not convince anyone on the jury. And in February 2015, Ulbricht, Ross Ulbricht was convicted on all counts after a jury trial. He was sentenced to double life imprisonment plus 40 years without the possibility of parole and using the data from the computer the feds and all the agents were able to identify all the other employees as well and all the other employees were eventually arrested too i think that's yeah i don't know yeah you have any closing thoughts about like how this book has like made you change how you think about like business or drugs or tech this book was really not heavy-handed in terms of its opinions right so like it didn't really make you want you it didn't really turn you from a libertarian to a non-libertarian or a non-libertarian to a libertarian like and it didn't really affect your view on drugs either like i feel like that's people, true yeah people who like believed that the world would be a safer place if drugs were legal and 100 percent regulated would still believe that after reading the book and like people who believe the opposite would still believe that after reading the book and i think that just like goes to show like how a objective like the author was in trying to talk about drugs and like create this narrative but it it was almost like an inspirational book for an entrepreneur even though like this guy was clearly doing illegal things and doing an illegal business within the legal marketplace like there were a lot of things that were really impressive about Ross Ulbricht and things that you could take away as like a founder and you basically had very good frameworks in terms of like like product market fit founder market fit you know, yeah. Even co-founder person. conflicts. Yeah, he, he right. was butting heads with Variety Jones about ownership. Variety Jones asked if he could be a 50-50 partner. Ross was insulted by that. And uh, I understood where Variety Jones came from. Like Variety was providing like a ton of value and a ton of unique guidance um, that the site was really benefiting off of. But then I also understand Ross because Ross would definitely resent like giving out 50% of his of his equity if when he was the one that was doing like shouldering the majority of the risk and everything from the very beginning. That just wouldn't have felt fair for Ross either. 
Um, yeah. So even even things like co-founder conflicts, like you know, were touched upon. Yeah, no, and that's like so relatable, right? Like we have so yeah. many friends who are founders, we're founders ourselves, and like co-founder conflicts are something that's just like such a regular <laughs> thing and such a regular problem in like the startup world that you're just like, yeah, like both of their arguments make a lot of sense. Like very relatable yeah. content. I probably have one person reach out to me every single month to talk about co-founder conflicts. It's pretty wild. Yeah, I, I, I get them every once in a while as well. Probably not every month, but it it is yeah. definitely a recurring theme. Right, right. All right, Dylan, I think this is it. This is All awesome, right. man. I think we should also consider reading uh, Nick Dilton's other book. He actually wrote a book about Twitter. Hmm. If we, if we like okay, the yeah, software. Uh, yeah, I, I think we should definitely consider that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bilton clearly puts in a lot of work. Uh, good shit, Nick Bilton. Thank you. Awesome. And this has been the Tech Book Club. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Cheers. Thank you.